hey, good morning. We uh, get to the portion of the preaching of the Word of God. I'll see how long my voice lasts here today. It wants to kind of go out on me. And uh, thanks for everybody helping to sing along there. And uh, I kind of grabbed Audrey at a last moment and say, hey, I need some help. I didn't think I'd be able to sing at all. <laughs> at least there was something there. But um, what they call this, the frog in the throat deal? Anyway, um, we are all very familiar with the phrase, Christ died for sinners. Right? And it's absolutely true. Praise the Lord. Because we're all sinners and we're in the need of a Savior. He died for us, right? But how about Christ died for God? Have you ever tried that one on for size? Does that sound a little strange? Does it sound odd? Does it sound not right? Christ died for God. What uh, somebody might really say, you know, that didn't seem familiar. I'm not so sure if that's right. Uh, but think about it for a moment, because we know that he certainly died for sinners. Uh, that's what we are counting on. But we have to examine the thought of Christ dying for God. That's our title for the message today, if you've seen it there in your, in your bulletin. It, it's the theme. It's the theme that's interwoven throughout all of Scripture, actually. Not only in our text, but interwoven that goes all the way back to Genesis. And if you want to, go back to the divine counsels of God, the foundation of the world before that, the plan of the ages. And you can see the wisdom of God there. And there you have... Uh, the. We're presented with the fall of man in Genesis, and it shows that man chose to do sin. He chose to do something that was different than what God had said. And really, the just thing to do for a perfectly righteous judge and a perfectly righteous God would be to condemn mankind eternally. Eternal doom. That would be the just thing to do. And God could have done that. There's only one thing though. You see, not only does He have wrath and justice, but He also has the nature of mercy and grace and love. So how do you do all of those with wrath and punishment of sin and remain just? I mean, he's got to be just in what he does and righteous in everything. And we know that his plan was is that the second person of the triune God would come here to earth as a man and also God and would come to redeem man from the sin that he was in and the punishment that he deserves from that. And the redemption means the paying of a price. The price has to be paid. Uh, we have to be set free from that bondage of sin. And there was a sacrificial death by that second person of the Trinity, and it appeased God. It actually turned things back over. The, the wrath of God is satisfied and so the payment that was made for sinners, and Christ died for sinners, 
but he also cried out in the sense that, Father, I've done what our plan is, in humanly speaking, because then the Father says, like, well done. Because that was the plan, that he do that, and the Father was pleased. He was satisfied. So it's very important to note that Christ actually died for God. Not only us, but for God. God was pleased. He was satisfied. The character of Him is perfectly put on display. When you look at the cross, what you see is absolute condemnation of sin. His Son had to die. At the same time, you see the love and the mercy and grace that is at the cross. He was able to display all of those at the same time at the cross. And that's phenomenal. This is the just one. And he's the only one that could have done that because nobody was perfect. He lived a perfect life. And he paid the perfect price. His blood. He was the just one. And also God is the justifier. He is what made us justified. The plan is all about His glory. And that is a tremendous story, isn't it? It's truth. It's what it's all about. God is certainly pleased whenever we talk about this kind of glory. This is immense. It's deep, it's profound, and yet it's simple that even a child can understand. Now the synopsis that's found in our text today, we have two verses, 25 and 26 in chapter 23. We started last time um, basically dealing with the good news. We dealt with almost three chapters here of bad news, the, the wrath of God against the um, man's sin and unrighteousness and unholiness. So what we uh, get are uh, some great word pictures here today in 25 and 26 and even off of 24, that's where we left off, dealing with redemption. Um, This section has captured many people from lost lives to being converted. This verse 25 and 26 has brought many to Christ. One of them being William Cowper. Anybody ever heard of William Cowper? Cowper wrote a lot of hymns. He was a poet back in the uh, uh, 1700s. Cowper had a horrible childhood. His mother died when he was six years old. And he was put into really a boarding school. We've heard of boarding schools. Usually not the nicest place to be. And uh, he was smaller than all the other kids, and you can imagine what happens with that. He was always made fun of, he was bullied around, he was beaten up constantly. He hated his life as he grew up, and uh, they frequently uh, beat on him. It was a struggle. And needless to say, that affected him mentally. He had a lot of mental failures as time went on. He tried to commit suicide. When he was 25, he was put into an insane asylum, and that usually pretty well means that's it. You know, we've heard of horror stories in insane asylums, and 
especially going way back when and how they would treat uh, the people there. And he was under the care, though, of a doctor. A doctor who was a Christian. A doctor who actually told him what Christianity is really about. And as he gave him compassion, uh, he was relieved of a lot of his deep, dark depressions that he had had for years and years. He was introduced to salvation by this doctor. That shows you what a, a place that each one of us play in this world because you never know who you're going to run into, who you're dealing with that might need Christ, who you're working with, what have you. It's amazing. Uh, those are not accidents, are they? Anyway, uh, Cowper was much troubled by his sin. He had stated, My sin, my sin, oh, for some fountain to open for my cleansing. Now, with the help of the doctor, he discovered that there was only one fountain. It was the only fountain that was ever washed away anybody's sins. And that is, of course, kind of the basis for one of the songs that he wrote. You might already recognize it, but what he did is whenever he was introduced to Christ, and at this time he opened up the Word of God. You know what the very first verse was that shouted at him? It was right here in Romans 3 in our text that we're talking about today. He read this, Immediately I received strength. Let me read that 24 and 25. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. So he had read that and he said, I immediately received strength to believe in the full beams of the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness shone on me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement he had made, my pardon in his blood, and the fullness and completeness of his justification. In a moment, I believed and received the gospel. Later he wrote of this conversion, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains. He wrote more verses to that. Has anybody ever heard that line before? Probably all have. In case you're wondering, it's there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Right? The fountain. Uh, are, are you uh, drinking from the fountain this morning? It's Christ Himself, isn't it? It's the Word of God. There was another one by the name of John Bunyan. John Bunyan, a Puritan. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Only one of the best sellers ever outside of the Bible in all of the world. Still sells today. They've even made movies about it. <laughs> the book is the best. But he was another testimony of the power of this text. As I was walking up and down in the house as a man in a most woeful state, the Word of God took hold of my heart. It was this text right here. He then said, Oh, what a turn it made upon me. 
I was one as awakened out of some troublesome dream. Boy, what a powerful text to convert souls. It says in verse 24, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That can convert souls. That's how powerful it is. Let's pray. Lord, Your Word is powerful. It does convert souls. It changes them for eternity. Lord, we can be in a woeful state, but all of a sudden, the light of the Son of Righteousness can shine upon us, give us the truth of what we need the most. We are in the need of a Redeemer who can take our place and be declared righteous. Lord, we need that severely. Now, as we look at Your Word Help guide us into the deep, deep, deep truths that we see here this morning. Amen. This, this section has got some key words that just, they explode out of the pages of our scriptures here this morning. 24 is where we left off, but in 24 you have been justified as a gift by His grace, we studied these already, but there's justification, there's grace, redemption, it's through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Are those key elements? <laughs> this is the heart, the very soul of what the gospel of Jesus Christ is right here. You couldn't be at a better text that formulates what the gospel salvation is. Key doctrinal terms, we, we move on with it. Today, uh, obviously, one of them is going to be propitiation, blood, faith, justification. All of those words are there. We're only talking within two or three verses. Key doctrinal terms, pictures for us to be able to get so yes, we will get doctrinal, but it should hit the heart. This is what God has done for us. Now the word redemption was found in verse 24. Redemption uh, is a word that would be dealing with the marketplace. The marketplace. You go into a marketplace to buy, to sell. Um, that's the idea of Redemption. It's an image here of Christ's work. This is where we're drawn in to the world of buying and selling. We are familiar with that. All of us do that. Whether you want to do it or not, you have to go buy food. You have to go buy gas. You have to go buy all the necessities of life, don't you? And uh, so we go into the marketplace. And we have a Greek word here 
that means to buy in the market, to take it out of the market, and then to set it free, uh, namely a slave. They would have slaves in the marketplace. To take a slave, you'd buy it, you'd slave it. the slave would be yours, and then you'd take him on out. But this one extends one further. It is the slave that is taken out, and he's set free. And that's what we looked at last week. We have been bought with a price and set free. So that's why that word is so important, redemption. Have you been redeemed, right? Bought, paid for. So, it starts with the marketplace. He uses another term here, and as we look at it today here in verse 25, as we introduced redemption, it says in verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. Propitiation is dealing with religious sacrifices. So it's a religious term. We've seen the marketplace, now we look at a religious term. Things that the pagans would be familiar with, ancient religions, it's where the worshippers would present a sacrifice to their deity in hoping to please Him where they wouldn't get punished. Now, it was because the god or the gods were angry. And the angry gods needed to be appeased. And that's the idea of our word propitiation. In our biblical terminology, it goes much further than that. And I know that that sounds really odd uh, if we would say God is angry and we have to appease Him. But we'll get to that in, in a few moments. So we've looked at two pictures now, the marketplace and religions of the world, the ancient religions. We go to the third one as we look in 25, and we're going to come back and describe these a little further. Whom God displayed publicly as propitiation in His blood through faith, this was to demonstrate His righteousness or His justice. And then we see righteousness again and the just and the justifier. And He declares uh, His people righteous, right? Or just. Now we get into... A courtroom. We've been in the marketplace. We've seen the ancient religions and now we go into the courtroom which is justice. Justification comes from the law courts. A person is acquitted. An accused person is now acquitted. He is declared righteous. And it only indicates that the person involved has a right standing. It's not that he is made righteous, even though as a Christian, we understand that there is something that happens in us, and yes, we do have the righteousness of God, and but in that sense, that's as close as it gets, because it's a declaration, is what the meaning of this term is. And 
when one is declared righteous, they are in a right standing before the bar of God's justice. Whether that person in court did or did not do wrong, even if he's perfectly right, he is not made right by the judge. Right? Because if he's already right, he's right. Or if he's wrong, he's wrong. But the judge is saying and declaring that they are righteous. That's what happened uh, whenever God pronounced us righteous. He declared us righteous. Now we need to get back to that word propitiation for a moment because it's a word that we don't use very much. Um, We probably have here whenever we get to that term and it definitely is uh, super doctrinal. Um, It presupposes something. It presupposes the wrath of God. And that's key because it means that His wrath needs to be appeased. His wrath needs to be turned aside. He's angry. He's angry at sin. Scripture says He's angry every day at the wicked. All sinners He's angry at, and not just the sin, but also them, because they have offended His holiness, His righteousness. And so we have to see God as a holy God. And we have to take in this already view of, yeah, we deserve wrath. Right? Well, uh, there are many evangelicals today that would go right along with the liberal thought and say, oh, we shouldn't be talking about the wrath of God because we have the good news now and we have a, a different kind of God than the Old Testament. We've said this many times. But we have to clarify uh, what's going on here because much of the evangelical world today would be offended at what we are just now talking about. Uh, to be propitiated. Because in its truest sense, it's offensive to people who don't understand the gospel, but it is the heart of the very gospel that is so dear to us. Man has sinned. Man is fallen. God is angry. Is that is that pretty easy to understand? I, you know, we've been through three chapters of this, and we know that uh, that is the message throughout Scripture. So, the question, though, is: Well, what can be done if that be the case? That's what people should be asking, shouldn't they? That's the biblical truth about man's dilemma and God's solution. He has a solution. It's great good news. So, what is this idea of propitiation? It's the wrath of God. And we know that He has been offended. God has. But the wrath is now appeased or turned aside. He is pleased with what the Son of God has done. Is it hard to understand why liberals or even evangelicals of our time would be so offended at this doctrine? Well, they don't like the idea of Christ dying for and being punished. The evangelicals don't like the idea of him being punished. Satan did that. And or sin, because of sin, that's happened, but 
and sin does have a big part to play in it, doesn't it? But God has a solution to this. And it's a good thing. God has been satisfied by the death of Jesus. We see that the liberals don't like the idea of Jesus dying for our sins either. Uh, More or less, they like to think of Him as being a good example. And we can follow the same example that Jesus had. We can be like Him. It wasn't His death that caused you to be in the right standing with God. It's because of His life. Yeah, he had to die, and that was just horrible. It's, it's a shame that he even had to die. Well, yeah, it is humanly, but he had to die. Else we're lost in our sins. Why do they want to believe that? Well, somehow, they've got some rightness of their own, don't they? So the modern objection, this it's a, a term that's not popular. God punishes, if we were to look back in chapter 1, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed, it is now seen from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And then from there on, it's all downhill for man. It goes further and further all the way through Chapter 3, verse uh, 20. And uh, so that's, that's where it left us in verse 21. It said, But now, apart from the law, the God, righteousness of God has been manifested. It's been shown. It's been revealed. Wrath of God is against all ungodliness. But now it says, The righteousness of God has been manifested been seen. It is seen. Uh, The RSV translation favor, and it's a liberal translation, it did have a lot of good things about it, but really the people on the staff of the RSV and today you've heard of the NRSV, it's a new revised standard version basically the same thing, just a few changes, certain words, but that's what we get at. Uh, RSV was one of the first modern translations to come out. I'm not against modern translations, but just to show you, whenever you have a liberal staff translating a Bible, you have to be concerned. And what it says is that instead of propitiation, it puts in the word expiation. And you go, well, what's wrong with that? It's okay, right? Well, first it sounds okay because that expiation means to remove sin and guilt. Sounds like the same kind of thing going on, right? To remove it. To be forgiven. Well, that's good news. That's in the Bible. It's biblical. But the word in the Greek is not expiation, but it's propitiation, and there is a difference. The uh, idea of expiation does not bring in the idea of the wrath of God. Um, The wrath of God is not placated here. So expiation is that kind of idea. It's the covering over of our guilt. Expiation is true because we are uh, forgiven. Our sins are removed. But 
but there's something else that has to happen before you are forgiven. God has to be pleased with the sacrifice, not that you bring, but with the offering of Christ. And so, see, again, expiation cannot be translated there. Propitiation is the right word. And so what we need to do is take it back to the Old Testament. There is the mercy seat. And we're all familiar with that probably. Uh, At the mercy seat, the wrath of God was placated against sin so that His love then could go out to save sinners. That's what you see whenever you'd see the tabernacle, the temple, the Holy of Holies, and the high priest going into the Holy of Holies one time a year. And he would be taking the blood into that room, the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God was to be done. And to be uh, to be there, to be present, and he would look upon into that Ark of the Covenant, which had the mercy seat covering it. It's a box covered with gold, um, beautiful holy of holies. The whole temple, and just amazing way that it was built. And, all the glory that's there, but when God would look down upon it as He is represented there, as His presence is there, you'd have the cherubim on each side of uh, the ark, and then there's God looking down, and what He would see would be the law in that ark of the covenant. And that was what was put in there. Uh, But what He sees there is that it's broken. Mankind breaks the law. And so when the blood is then put on there by that priest, he's now satisfied with the sacrifice that has been made. He's appeased. His wrath is taken away. And this actually would be a divine gift that God has given them to see until Christ the Messiah comes. He provided for a sacrifice for the people that they would look forward to this Messiah. Leviticus 17.11 Look at this provision for a moment. Let's look at the law. He provides a way for them to get back into His presence. Leviticus 17, verse 11, you probably heard of this before. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. But I want you to recognize the next phrase. And I have given it to you. The Lord is the provider. He gave them a gift. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And here's where your liberals and a lot of evangelicals will say, It's not death. See, the blood is life. It's about the life of Christ. Now, we need the life of Christ, but we also have to have the death of Christ. But the life of the flesh is in the blood. And that's true. Uh, If you look physically, you know, the, the blood 
is the one that works through our whole system and it, it cleans out your system, right? And it plays a, a key role in your life. If your blood is not flowing. If you don't have blood, you, you're dead, right? But this is not talking about the biological fact here because as we go here, it says the life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you on the altar, now watch, to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. That means there's a shedding of the blood. Now the idea here is death. Because you see, the blood had to be shed. The life of the blood, right? The blood, life of the flesh is in the blood. And so it's representing life, but life that had to be given. It's sacrificed. You see, the modern teaching today in the evangelical world do not even like to talk about sacrifice. Because that means Christ had to die. Had to die for punishment. God would never punish His Son, they say. We're just taking the Gospel away. Every one of these terms that we're talking about here, you're not going to be heard in a, definitely a liberal church. But even in the evangelical realm, they will not use these terms. It's highly offensive. Sacrificial atonement. The blood had to be offered. They say, well, that's Old Testament. Yeah, all it's doing is giving us a picture of what it would ultimately be. It's a violent death. When somebody talks about the blood of Christ, he had to die violently on that cross to pay for our sins. Blood was shed there. Just like in the Old Testament sacrifices that were pictures of the ultimate reality. So he says, I have given it to you, sacrificial blood, to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. The ark is a terrible picture of judgment. It should produce fear in the worshiper, and it did. God sees the law broken. He must punishment. He must punish sin. They had the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was the last feast in order of all of the seven feasts of the Jews. And that's I've already described it about the Holy of Holies and such. But that mercy seat, if you translate it in Greek, right, out of the Hebrew in the Old Testament, you've got the word propitiation there. And in the Greek Old Testament, and that was translated by the 70, they, it's when Greek was becoming the number one language in the world. and So it would go out to everybody and they try to do it as accurate as they could just right from the Hebrew. And they used propitiation there. Because that's exactly what mercy seat means. That's, that's the idea. And so whenever the mercy seat sprinkled blood, it was sprinkled with blood, 
What's that mean? Well, God no longer sees the law of Moses broken. The blood has taken care of that. Something had to die. Something had to be sacrificed in our place. He did it for us. So that's substitutionary atonement. Have you heard of that word before? Probably have. Well, you won't hear it in most of the evangelical world today and never in a liberal church because they don't like the idea of a substitute. Are you getting the idea? Christ was not sent here to die for our sins. What does that do to the gospel? Just rapes it. Rips it all apart. The gospel really has nothing to do with their theology. Very distasteful. Now, that's where that's at. Um, the church, probably within the last 100 years or so here in America, has bought a lot of those lies. And, and many of the churches that would be considered to be good, that had good roots, but they've lost a lot of this terminology. Now, a lot of this I basically got from Martin Lloyd-Jones back in the 1950s. And when I read that, I go, oh, this is about as current an update as you can be. See, it was already happening in the 50s. Yeah, 50 years before him. It's already happened in the 1800s. Um, about that mercy seat, it's interesting. Do you remember the tax collector and the Pharisee in chapter 18 of Luke? Luke 18, verse 9. And he told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. One religious, another one not. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like the tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified, there's our word, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Tax collector literally said this, God be merciful to me. You know what he literally said? This is the place where you have the temple. People are bringing sacrifices. They're, bring, they're bringing their offerings. They're bringing money. This is the place of worship. This man is standing way away from anybody that would be righteous. But at any rate, he's saying this. God be mercy seated to me. Did you get that? God be mercy seated. 
he's near the temple there. He can't go into there, and nobody can but the priest, high priest, once a year. But he knows about the mercy seat. God has to be satisfied. God be mercy seated to me, a sinner. We cannot be saved without a propitiation. He knew what the mercy seat was all about. The law had been broken, but God provided the blood to be offered. The wrath of God must be turned aside. He knew what he deserved. So that's why he says that. He knew full well. I think that's rather incredible. That is word the word propitiated. Be merciful. God propitiate. Be propitiated by what Christ will do on the cross. Now he's looking at the blood's blood of the animals. Christ hadn't been sacrificed yet, but he will be. And that's what will make it permanent. So we get one key word done. That's propitiation. And that really is the word that I wanted to hit on today. But let's catch on a few more words. And faith is one of them. And we've already hit on that last week. But let's go back now to our Romans. And I know that this might sound like we're in a seminary today. Because we're really hitting on terms, and to a lot of people they might be lost. But let's think about it. What do these really mean? If, if these pictures are right, that whether it be redemption, He bought us out of a marketplace, or being propitiated, God is satisfied with the offering that Christ did. He can't be satisfied with my offering, but He is with Christ. What what does that mean for me? What what do I what do I do then? Verse twenty five. Actually, if you looked in verse, we've already seen it. Uh, if we were backed up, it talked about faith in Christ in verse twenty two. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, right? Um, 25, God displayed publicly as propitiation in His blood through faith. There again, so the way we're connected to God by this sacrifice is that there's faith. There has to be faith. The work of Christ is of no use to the sinner if it's not personal. There has to be faith. It's through faith, right? It says there. We know that. Yeah, just believe in God. Faith is the channel. It is the instrument that He grants to us. And it works through that channel so that we can be believers. In Hebrews 11.6, it says, For without faith, it is impossible to please God. So we have to have that, don't we? Now there's three parts to faith. We'll break this down real quickly. Say, so, well, that's a, everybody knows what faith is. Okay, uh, down through church history, during the Dark Ages, the church believed it was not necessary for the faithful to actually know anything. 
It was called implicit faith. That's the dark ages because they did not know anything because the church was it. All you have to do is be a part of the church. You have implicit faith. It doesn't matter. And and so guess what the sermons were preached in? In Latin. For hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, did the common person know Latin? No, it was for the scholar. It really was uh, a language that people didn't know, and especially by the time it goes out to the rest of the world. What is that? But that's what the priest would preach in if they did preach. And what it comes down to is faith has to have some kind of knowledge. How can you... It's, well, just believe, right? Uh, have faith. Have faith in what? Well, it doesn't matter. Just believe. Believe what? <laughs> and I've heard of people as oh, what is faith? Well, just believe in something. Believe in anything? What is Christianity? Yeah, believe in Christ. What is what? Who is He? What, what did He do? Well, I don't know. I, I've just been part of the church, and you know, it, they say believe in Jesus, so I do. What is it that you believe about Jesus, right? So faith is something that rests upon knowledge. There is a part of, and it's not pious ignorance, which is exactly the what they were all counting on. We obtain salvation when we know that God is our merciful Father and because we have reconciliation to this Father through Christ. That's pretty simple, isn't it? He reconciles us. He makes us to where we're reconciled back into We get in a relationship with Him. Um, so that's one way that that would be looked at. By the way, John Calvin severely attacked the church about not knowing anything. Uh, I think we all would too, right? Uh, he argued that the object of faith is what? Christ. He's the object. And that faith rests upon knowledge and not ignorance. Number two, there is a moving of the heart. It means there's a stirring there. It's assenting to, it's believing it. You hear the fact, you have faith in that, you've now assented to it. It moves your heart. And number three, there's a commitment to it. And that's yielding yourself to Christ. Giving yourself Christ. We, we are pledging ourselves to Him. He's already done that, hasn't He? He pledges Himself to us. We pledge ourselves to Him. And that's all the three-part idea of, of faith. So it does take knowledge. It's like, well, how much knowledge do you have to have? It's, it's not that you have to know all these deep things, even that we're even dealing with today, and all the key words, but does take in who Christ is. What did He do? And who is he? And, and what were you? And you were somebody that was in need and desperate. You needed him to save you. Those are facts that are very important, that are key to know, then to commit. So we have the word faith. What do we have in our text here? Faith in his blood. Redemption is in Christ. 
There's a propitiation that's in His blood through faith, right? Uh, Modern misunderstanding. You remember back a few decades ago they started taking out the word blood out of hymns. You know, we have that throughout our hymnal, uh, you know, the, the fact that there is the blood that's so key. It's a major component of Christianity. Who Christ is, nothing but the blood. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You have to think of all of those songs dealing with blood. Uh, but it's so offensive to people that consider themselves to be Christians. Remember, it means death. Blood means a violent death had to take place. It's not life. The life of the flesh is in the blood that has now been offered by Christ. The shedding of the blood has to do with Christ's death. Um, Salvation by substitution. And the blood paying for us. Let's look at a few of the New Testament texts that talk about such a precious doctrine to us. By the way, doctrine just simply means teaching. These doctrine means here's what you are to believe. That's why we're here today to learn what God has in His written word. Amazing, isn't it? Verse eleven. But when Christ appeared as a high priest, remember the Old Testament? Christ is the high priest. He's not the type of Christ. He is the very completion. Of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood through His death, like those animals. But it was His blood. He entered the holy place once for all. That blood does not have to be continually offered up, does it, every day? It's already been done. No need to do it anymore. Having obtained, look at this, eternal redemption, the blood paid for our sins eternally. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So there's blood and that gives the Old Testament meaning now to what was done by Christ here in the New Testament. Now, look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. These are all blood passages. In Him, that's Christ, we have redemption. Ah, you remember what that is? That's to, to be bought, paid for. Through His blood. How, how do we have redemption? through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. 
that's great. That's great. We've been bought and we were paid for by His blood. It says grace that does that. Acts 20, verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. With His death. He purchased that for us. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Knowing that you are not redeemed, there's that word again, right? With perishable things, like silver or gold, you weren't bought with those precious things, from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but, how were we redeemed? With precious blood. You notice it's precious there? As of a lamb. And that would take you back to the Old Testament. Unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Does that sound like our other Romans passage? That ties it all up, doesn't it? When we're justified, when we're declared righteous because of the blood of what Christ has done in His death, we're saved from the wrath of God because God has been placated of Christ's payment. Lamb. We read that earlier there. Peter said, like a lamb. Old Testament lambs. The tabernacle, the temple, the feast days, Passover, the lamb, the blood, the blood is shed. You bring a lamb there, you'd offer it, and the offerer would be responsible for slitting the throat of that lamb. Gentle, innocent, perfect lamb. No blemishes. And you slit it and the blood comes gushing out. Boy, would that hit you? It probably literally did. But I'm just saying that uh, to do that with your own lamb makes you identify with what happened. Now, what we have is, we go back to Romans. That being said, in Romans 3 now, and we look at verse 26, God displayed publicly as propitiation in His blood through faith, having faith in that blood. This was to demonstrate His righteousness. And the idea here is... uh, we get into the justice of God. 
And Thomas Watson says the very hinge and pillar of Christianity stands upon justification by faith. We're justified. Martin Luther said when the article of a justification is falling, everything has fallen. That means if you don't have justification as faith, justification by faith as the very precedent and the very foundation of your belief, you have nothing. It all falls. John Calvin says the main hinge on which salvation turns is justification by faith. We're declared righteous because of what Christ has done. All of Romans is about justification. So, it says in 25, this was to demonstrate His righteousness. He's right. You say, well, how can He get away with saving sinners since He's so, so holy? Well, yeah, He's got righteousness. He is righteous. He is perfectly righteous. But he, and He demonstrated that it was going to be punished. And where was it punished at? At the cross. It wasn't you or me, but it was Christ at the cross. To demonst- he demonstrated His righteousness when He did that, because He was perfectly right in doing it. Because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. All the sins that were committed by believers in the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, go on and on and on, all the bukus of believers, and you can say, well, how did he... They're still sinners. They should have been judged. Well, ultimately, they're going to be judged just like we are judged when we look back. They look forward, and it was Jesus Christ. And that's where it, it took there. The sins previously committed. It was like he was looking over that, you know. But, you know, it wasn't that he was excusing it, but it was going to be done in time. And... I want to end up here, and we're right at the end. I wished I would have brought my board out of here, or had it ready on the screen, and maybe I could have put it up. But I want you to envision here a triangle. Can you guys do this? A triangle. And on this triangle, there, there's three, three points that we're going to look at here. And if you didn't get anything else today... Get it right here. This is your outline for the day. The line at the bottom stands for redemption. You got that? The line at the bottom stands for redemption. One point here is Christ at this one side. Okay? And the other point at the bottom is the sinner. It's us. Okay, we got that? And when we're talking about redemption here, this means this is what Jesus did in relation to His people. We're connected there because of Christ. Okay, this is what Christ did. He redeemed us, right? So He bought and paid for it by His blood. Now you have a point where Jesus is at here. Goes up to the top of the triangle. And this would be God, God the Father, okay? Because of the foundation, because of that line, we now have something where 
the Son of God is connected with the Father, and it is propitiation. Because of what He did for us by paying for our sins, redemption, we now have propitiation that connects the Son to the Father. The Father is pleased with what the Son did. So that one point connects God the Father with Christ. You have one more. Now you have God the Father at the top that now connects to the sinner. You have Jesus connecting to the sinner, redemption. Jesus connecting to the Father, propitiation. What's that third key component that we're looking at today? Justification. This is why that you are declared righteous. Because of what Christ did by paying for your sins, the Father is pleased with the Son, and now God declares us righteous. And it's all back to the fact of what had been done by Christ there. But it's all of God's plan. The whole triune God is involved in that. And so we are connected with God the Son, God the Father, God the Spirit. God is the subject. And now we get into this interesting word here right at the end of verse 26. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time of God's righteousness. He was perfectly righteous in this plan, wasn't He? So that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Did you catch that? God is the subject as He justifies us we are the object called the justified. There's a just and there's a justifier. He declared us righteous. He got His just demands met and He was pleased. And the power of the Holy Spirit came upon us so that we would have faith. We are connected to God by that. This is all the work of God. And... God is a receiver of propitiation. Did you, get, did you catch that? He received propitiation from His Son on the basis of Christ's work. Was God unjust? Not at all. He was just and He was loving at the same time. We have to accept both. When, he's, when you're saying that He's righteous and He's just, it means He's holy and we're not. But when He's the justifier, then that's where Christ comes into play and that sacrifice and the death of Christ, God's name is vindicated. It's now seen that on the basis of the very death of Christ, God had been just when He justified the sinner even all the way back in the Old Testament. Even though it hadn't happened yet. He was looking to that. And He continues to justify all of His people. And that being us. To have faith in Christ. To trust in all of this that we've talked about.
That is what makes you a believer. And it's the very fact of God working in us. Give us the faith and the repentance. And um, I spent quite a bit of time on this, trying to put it in different pictures and ideas, but that's why it's there, so that we can just kind of ruminate on that. This precious truth, you can say, oh, yeah, that seems really basic. It is. It's real basic. But it's very profound. This was all God's plan. And think about all the depth of what it means. Let's pray. Father, what a text you've given us. What great good news. We spent so long on the wrath of God. And now we see it fully demonstrated as we look at the cross. Lord, may we seriously take in all that you have given us. We receive your truth. Help it make an impact on our lives. And that we would continue to be changed because we are declared righteous. You desire us to be righteous. And the Holy Spirit works in us so that we can honor you by our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.